Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Now, if you would please rise, I will begin by swearing you in. I believe that it was of paramount interest to the nation to determine whether a foreign adversary had interfered in the presidential election. During the course of our investigation, we charged more than 30 defendants with committing federal crimes. First, our investigation found that the Russian government interfered in our election in sweeping and systematic fashion. Second, the investigation did not establish that members of the Trump campaign conspired with the Russian government in its election interference activities. We decided we would not make a determination as to whether the president committed a crime. And what about total exoneration? Did you actually totally exonerate the president? No. The president could be prosecuted for obstruction of justice crimes after he leaves office, is correct? True. The bedrock principle of our justice system is a presumption of innocence. Everyone is entitled to it, including sitting president. Anyone else who did these things would be prosecuted for them. Because no one is above the law. Uh, could you repeat that, please? In America, nobody is above the law. No one is above the law. So to reiterate, simply trying to obstruct justice can be a crime, correct? Yes. You would consider a billion dollar deal to build a tower in Moscow to be business dealings, wouldn't you, Director Mueller? Yeah, absolutely. Why did we have all of this uh, investigation when you knew that you weren't going to prosecute him? I'm not going to speak to that. I can't get into uh, internal deliberations. I leave that to the Attorney General to identify. That's what it says in the report. Outside our purview. Fusion GPS. I'm not going to speak to that. Peter Strzok. I'm not going to speak to that. Impeachment. I'm not going to comment. The Hillary Clinton campaign. Trump Tower in Moscow. I'll say that again if you could. You're going to have to repeat that. Can you repeat the last part of that question? Can you repeat the question, sir? I'd have to look more closely at the statute. I just read it to you. Hello and welcome to Trump, Inc., a podcast from WNYC and ProPublica that looks at the business of Trump. I'm Andrea Bernstein, here with Jesse Isinger and Heather Vogel of ProPublica. Hi. Hello. We watched all seven hours of special counsel Robert Mueller's testimony. The Democrats tried to show how Trump was serially unethical and obstructive. Republicans tried to paint him as a victim. Mueller just wanted to go home. We are going to talk about the few revealing moments in the testimony, particularly having to do with Trump's business and the way that his business interests came into conflict with the country's interests going back to the campaign. We're also going to look at the ways the president obstructed Mueller's inquiry and how that, too, fits into a pattern of deception that goes back decades with the Trumps. So before we start, just for people who didn't listen to the whole testimony, can you give a quick summary of sort of the atmospherics? Well, I, you know, I started watching it, and my first thought was that Mueller was trying to be basically as boring as possible, uh, you know, that he did not want to be a tool to further somebody's political agenda. And so, you know, he wasn't really leaning into the mic. He was giving one-word answers. He was asking to have the question repeated a lot. He was being very careful, and anything that was at all outside the report, he was saying he wasn't going to comment on. And sometimes he didn't even answer questions that actually were answered in the report. But still, fundamentally, this thing happened, which is 
all of these people were speaking aloud, including the author of this document, about a document that has really only existed on paper. There was, even though it didn't feel dramatic, there was something dramatic about that. He became more engaged as time went on also. And you could tell there were certain points that he felt um, very passionately about, including concerns about the interference. So what we're going to do now is sort of talk about these points that sort of came alive from the testimony and some of the things that the Democratic Congress members wanted to say and some of the things that the Republican Congress members wanted to say. And we're going to start off with Adam Schiff, who is the chair of the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence, and his opening statement at the top of the afternoon testimony. Apart from the Russians wanting to help Trump win, several individuals associated with the Trump campaign were also trying to make money during the campaign and transition. Is that correct? That is true. Paul Manafort was trying to make money or achieve debt forgiveness from a Russian oligarch? Generally, that is accurate. Michael Flynn was trying to make money from Turkey? True. Donald Trump was trying to make millions from a real estate deal in Moscow? To the extent you're talking about the, uh, the uh, hotel in uh, Moscow? Yes. Yes. When your investigation looked into these matters, numerous Trump associates lied to your team, the grand jury, and to Congress? number uh, of persons that we interviewed in uh, our investigation, it turns out, did lie. Mike Flynn lied? Uh, he was convicted of lying, yes. George Papadopoulos was convicted of lying? True. Paul Manafort was convicted of lying? True. Paul Manafort was... In fact, went so far as to encourage other people to lie? That is accurate. Manafort's deputy, Rick Gates, lied? That is accurate. Michael Cohen, the president's lawyer, was indicted for lying? True. He lied to stay on message with the president? Allegedly by him. And when Donald Trump called your investigation a witch hunt, that was also false, was it not? I'd like to think so, yes. Well, your investigation is not a witch hunt, is it? It is not a witch hunt. Let's talk about this. Let's unpack this. Heather, what did this interchange tell you? Well, I think what was important about this was that when you looked at Mueller's report, he really did not explicitly spell out in that report how Trump's business dealings in Russia could have opened him up to compromise and why that was significant. And I could really hear the Democrats trying to draw those points out of Mueller a bit to sort of force him to connect some dots that weren't connected. Because all of these people were trying to make money. Right. There could be different sources of that compromise. You have uh, Trump potentially being owed money by people with all kinds of political baggage. You have um, Trump seeking favors potentially from uh, someone as high up as Putin. And then you have the situation where he perceived that these business dealings might be unpopular publicly. And so he lied in order to cover up the extent of what he was doing. And those are all things that could be used against him potentially by a foreign adversary to gain leverage. Jesse, even though there was probably 10 seconds of Mueller's actual words in the clip that we just heard, it is kind of dramatic hearing about this quick list of all of these people who made money or tried to make money and then lied about it, which is not something that is in the report in that way per se. Well, I think that what we have always focused on here at Trump Inc., to pat ourselves on the back, is the central conflict of interest at the heart of the Trump administration, which began with the Trump campaign, which is that he is a businessman and he refused to divest. And that's a conflict of interest. And what 
Mueller demonstrated was that everybody was trying to get over, not just Trump, but all of his minions, Michael Cohn and Manafort and Gates and Papadopoulos. And, you know, there was an enormous amount of focus on the salaciousness of the allegations about the connections to Russia. And really, this was always about money. It was about money on the Trump side and it was about money, as the Democrats pointed out, on the Russian side, that they wanted sanctions lifted, which is really something that can alleviate the financial pressure on Putin and the oligarchs. I mean, one of the things that are listening to you talk right now as I think about this when we started Trump Inc., we've been framing this podcast as an investigation of the way that the president's family business intersects with the presidency because he hasn't divided. And even though we've been following this case closely and we have read the Mueller report, there was this moment of really understanding how the conflict between Trump's business interests and the country were really rooted in the campaign and in this frenzied effort to make money by, in Paul Manafort's case, selling access to Russian oligarchs, in Michael Cohen's case, by setting up this Trump Tower deal, in Trump's case, by having the Trump Tower deal, in Michael Flynn's case, by selling access, how they all saw this as an opportunity which sort of invited in this foreign influence. So even though it's not a conspiracy per se, according to Mueller, a criminal conspiracy. There's the sense in which their actions in seeking money created the conditions for Russia to sort of rush into this vacuum. And compromise the president. That's the central issue is even if there wasn't a criminally provable conspiracy, what Mueller demonstrated was that Trump was compromised or could easily be compromised by his financial interests. So I think that we have always thought that the conflict of interest at the heart of the presidency was the most important thing to focus on. I think now we saw today a reiteration of that because the conflict of interest is at the heart of the biggest scandal of the Trump administration and the Trump presidency, which was Russian interference. One of the things that I noticed today was that The Democrats specifically pointed out it wasn't just Trump and the people around him trying to make money. The Russians were trying to make money, too. This is Representative Denny Heck of Washington State. But it wasn't just Trump and his associates who were trying to make money off this deal, nor hide it, nor lie about it. Russia was, too. That was the whole point, to gain relief from sanctions, which would uh, hugely benefit their incredibly wealthy Oligarchs, for example, sanctions relief was discussed at that June 9th meeting in the Trump Tower, was it not, sir? Yes, but so, it was not a main subject for discussion. So, Heather, what do we learn from the fact that the Russians were also, I mean, this sort of slight reframing of the Mueller report, which is that the Russians were also trying to monetize this relationship? Well, I think it just also underscores that it was money that was potentially ruling policy decisions that were maybe being made by the Trump campaign or policy positions, uh, that that's the danger here. Because what we're talking about, you know, is we're focusing on the money and the Russians are worried about their financial interests and Trump is worried about his financial interests. And people aren't talking about the geopolitical context. They're not talking about the larger balance of power in the region and NATO and and, and, and all of those things that we think are long term in the interest of the United States are not part of this conversation. It's it's become a dollars and cents conversation. So, Jesse, the Republicans don't ever respond to this directly, right? They just kind of leave it there and make their own points. 
Yeah, I think the Republicans had sort of two aims. One was to say that the investigation had corrupt origins, that this is a deep state and Democrat conspiracy. You know, they uh, discovered their inner criminal justice reform advocacy and, uh, you know, awoke to prosecutorial abuse. I mean, the second aim, which I think was underlying their points, was that Trump is the real victim. Trump is innocent, as we heard from Representative Louis Gohmert. And he knows he's innocent. He's not corruptly acting in order to see that justice is done. What he's doing is not obstructing justice. He is pursuing justice. And the fact that you ran it out two years means you perpetuated injustice. I take take your question. Gentlemen's time has expired. The witness may answer the question. I take your question. So let's talk a little bit about this obstruction, because the whole Judiciary Committee testimony was Democrat after Democrat in a fairly disciplined and especially sort of disciplined for Democrats way, sort of each of them taking different instances of the obstruction case that Mueller lays out in part two of his report and those specific ways that the president tried to keep the country from learning about all the dealings that we were just talking about. So, for example, this is Hank Johnson of Georgia talking about the president trying to get Don McGahn to call Rod Rosenstein to fire Robert Mueller. I'm sorry about that. On page 85 of your report, you wrote, quote, on the first call... McGahn recalled that the president said something like, quote, you got to do this. You got to call Rod, correct? Correct. And your investigation and report found that Don McGahn was perturbed, uh, to use your words, by the president's request to call Rod Rosenstein to fire him. Isn't that correct? Well, there, there was a continuous uh, uh, colloquy. I, I would, no, there was a continuous involvement of uh, Don McGahn uh, and he in, uh, responding to the uh, president's entreaties. And he did not want to uh, put himself in the middle of that. He did not want to have a role in asking the attorney general to fire the special counsel, correct? Well, I would, again, uh, refer you to the uh, report and the way it is characterized in the report. Thank you. Jesse, you. what are we hearing in this clip? We're hearing the Democrats make the case that there was obstruction of justice. But the larger point here is that obstruction is inextricably linked to the way Trump did business. He always lied. He always deflected and threatened and delayed and conveniently forgot things. That is a pattern going back decades in the way he ran his business. And I think the other thing is that what we were shown today and we have been shown steadily is that Obstruction works. Obstruction helped Trump make money. Obstruction helped him win the election. Obstruction helped get him to where he is today. Jesse, so wait, what do you mean by that? Well, I think we're conditioned to think from Watergate especially that the cover-up is worse than the crime and that cover-ups get revealed. And in fact, I don't think that's true at all. I think that much of the time you can squelch a prosecutorial inquiry with obstructive tactics. And this is a model that is used by corporations every single day to cover up their misdeeds. And Donald Trump used it in business, and he's using it in the presidency. And in this case, it seems like it's working. 
Yeah, you know, the thought that comes to mind is this pattern that we wrote about last fall. What we saw was a pattern of lying and false statements that were made to investors, potentially, uh, in deals around the world. So many of them fell through, went bankrupt, or never got built. Uh, A lot of people lost their money. And, you know, the the response of the Trump organization, you know, you could have picked it up from one place and transported it to another because it was always basically just to sort of absolve themselves of responsibility, walk away from it, and say we weren't that involved. And what our reporting actually bore out was that they were a lot more involved in a lot of decisions early on in these developments. So that was sort of the parallel that that came to mind. Well, also, they were able to go from deal to deal. By each time a bad deal happened, changing the narrative of what happened and not letting anybody find out what happened so that they would go and do a similar thing again. Exactly. They would basically put it on sort of, you know, bad actors that were not them, maybe some business partners or somebody else, and uh, pretty much kind of brush their hands off and, and walk away and say, it wasn't my fault. So one of the other things that came up today, I thought, in vivid detail, and this is a question that a lot of people wanted to hear Mueller answer, was about the president and the president's testifying or not testifying. So this is Representative Val Demings of Florida asking Mueller about the president's response to the questions that Mueller gave him. Could you say, Director Mueller, that the president was credible? I can't answer that question. Director Mueller, isn't it fair to say that the president's written answers were not only inadequate and incomplete because he didn't answer many of your questions, but where he did, his answer showed that he wasn't always being truthful? Uh, there, uh, I would say, uh, generally... Generally, Director Mueller, it's one thing for the president to lie to the American people about your investigation, falsely claiming that you found no collusion and no obstruction, but it's something else altogether for him to get away with not answering your questions and lying about them. And as a former law enforcement officer of almost 30 years, I find that a disgrace to our criminal justice system. Thank you so much. I yield back to the chairman. She's the former police chief of Orlando. So her perspective on this is interesting because she's seen a lot of investigations and she's seen a lot of witnesses and she has a perspective I think that most people don't. I think this really underscores Mueller's mistakes, his investigative mistakes and the way he conducted himself. And he was regarded as a hero and he was lauded, especially by Democrats, as such a great you know, patriot that his mistakes have gotten lost. I think that he compounded them today, one with his demeanor, that he was so cautious, so careful to be above board that he wouldn't really even say what he meant. And he wouldn't answer questions about things that were actually in the report. So Mueller says, I didn't make a finding because I couldn't indict the president because of DOJ policy. And because I couldn't indict the president, I can't even raise the question of whether we think he committed a crime or not. And a prosecutor that I was talking to recently said, this is not right, that there's nothing in OLC policy that says that Mueller was prevented from coming to an investigative conclusion. That happens all the time. Prosecutors write prosecutorial memos 
making an argument for a case that they have an investigative finding. So there was nothing to prevent Robert Mueller from saying Donald Trump obstructed justice. We are not indicting because of OLC policy and leave it at that. One of the things that came up was that Mueller never subpoenaed the president. And I think that by the time he got to a point where he realized that a subpoena may be necessary to elicit the answers that he needed, that he felt that it was too late because if they fought the subpoena, it would stretch things out. He would not be able to deliver his findings for much longer. And you could really tell from a few things that he said during his testimony that delivering this report expeditiously was really one of his top goals. So we're left with a situation where the president gave written answers, many of which were brief, like, I don't recall. And there were even some instances where the president's testimony, Mueller acknowledged, did not comport with other witnesses. We'll be right back. things in the report is that Mueller comes to the conclusion that the Russian offer of dirt to the Trump campaign on Hillary Clinton did not constitute a thing of value under campaign finance laws. And that is something that is very much debated. What Mueller says in the report is no court of law has ever assigned a monetary value to opposition research. Therefore, we cannot say how it could fit into these felony statutes. But people on campaign understand that opposition research can be of great value. And here in that meeting was not just the president's son and his son-in-law, it was Paul Manafort, who has worked on national campaigns since the 70s and is one of the people in the country best positioned to understand just how valuable that is. In addition to that, many campaign finance experts say that they misinterpreted campaign finance law because they required there to be an agreement between both parties. And in fact, that campaign finance law does not explicitly require an agreement, that there can just be help on both sides without an explicit agreement. But having made that criticism about campaign finance law, I mean, I was thinking today, it was three years ago that Jim Comey was talking about not prosecuting Hillary Clinton over her emails. And I just think three years ago, it would have been unimaginable for us to have the kind of conversation that we're having today, which is that the president had secret business deals in Moscow and the president's campaign manager was offering to get whole with a Russian oligarch debtor by giving information and exchanging campaign polling data. All of that is because Mueller did this report. So Mueller's argument is I'm putting all of this stuff in the public realm and I'm getting all of this information while memories are still fresh. And he did do that. I mean, the alternative would have been we wouldn't have known any of this. So we get to the end of the hearing and Mueller finally opens up. He starts talking in complete sentences. Yeah, this is this is a part where he starts talking a bit about the threat of foreign influence ongoing to American elections and the concerns that his concerns that it, this is a finding of his that is not being focused on enough out of the report. And my concern is 
Have we established a new normal from this past campaign that is going to apply to future campaigns so that if any one of us running for the U.S. House, any candidate for the U.S. Senate, any candidate for the presidency of the United States, aware that a hostile foreign power is trying to influence an election, has no duty to report that to the FBI or other authorities. Well, I hope. Go ahead. I hope this is not the, nor the uh, new normal, but I fear it is. And, and then he says, the ability, it's uh, going on right now. Yeah. It's chilling. Right. I mean, I get the sense that he's sort of like, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm ringing these bells as loud as these alarm bells, as loud as I can. And nobody's listening to them They're Instead, they're listening to some other music somewhere else. And that I mean, that seems to be his perspective potentially on on the report. He's saying it's my job to lay out all these facts and it's the country's job to rise to the occasion and prevent this from happening. Trump just recently said that he was asked, would you accept foreign help from in a campaign? And he said yes. So we have our answer. Even though there was a lot discussed today, even though there was all of these hours of testimony, we didn't learn a lot of new facts, and there's still a lot of questions. So I'm going to say my question. I'd like to know what your questions are. My big question was about something that didn't come up at all today, which was about Russian money in Trump's business in an ongoing way, not just in Trump Tower Moscow, but Trump's relationships with Russian nationals, with various Russian actors, with people who were buying his condos, and if that in any way laid the basis for the Trump Tower Moscow and for what happened during the campaign. We just don't know. For example, we still don't know about Trump's relationship with Deutsche Bank and why Trump was able to get these big loans from Deutsche Bank at a time when Deutsche Bank was separately having a very big problem with money laundering. So there's a whole area of inquiry that the Mueller report didn't get into that I still feel we need to know more about. Heather? Yeah, you know, I, I felt I still had a lot of questions, really, about the the nexus between Trump's Moscow business deal, the intelligence operation being run by the Russians to sort of cozy up to Trump and gain some influence there. And, you know, eventually the efforts to influence the election by Russia through social media. I felt there were still, you know, key questions there about how much the Trump campaign knew about these sorts of connections and these other agendas that the people that they were dealing with um, might have had. I don't I'm not sure exactly what level of awareness they had. And I don't know really what level of understanding they had that their business entanglements um, could be used against them in order to promote Russian interests. Right. I mean, there's this big open question, which is there's the Trump organization beseeching the Kremlin for help during the campaign. And it just remains a mystery to what extent that was linked to the other parts of the Russian interference campaign, the social media campaign and the hacking. How about you, Jesse? Um, you know, there are two things that Mueller decided were out of his remit. One was what you just alluded to, which is the kind of previous Trump organization, Donald Trump business history, which had a lot to do with potential money laundering, Russians, and we just don't know the history there. 
that has not been fully excavated. The other thing is compromise from other countries. Schiff alluded to Gulf nations uh, potentially compromising president, the president or presidential officials or administration officials with inducements. So we just don't know anything about that. And That Gulf nation thing actually is alluded to in the report. It has sort of a cameo role. Right. But he decided, uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave that to others. And by leaving to others, I think the answer is that we're getting to a point where we may never know about these things. Again and again throughout his testimony, Robert Mueller directed Congress to refer directly to his report. I rely on the, uh, the report. I refer you to the report. Uh, again, I refer you to uh, uh, the report. That's what it says in the report. Yes, and I go, I stand behind the report. I refer to the report on that. Uh, I refer to the write-up of this in the report. Well, uh, I would have to refer you to the report on that. I refer you to the uh, write-up of it in the report. I, I refer you to the uh, uh, the report. I, I direct you to the uh, report for how that is characterized. I, re- I rely on the language of the report. I just I believe it in, uh, as it appears in the report. Well, I would again uh, refer you to the uh, report and the way it is characterized in the report. If you haven't read the Mueller report already, we'll be sending out an extra edition of our newsletter this week with a whole host of different ways to read, listen to, and generally absorb Mueller's lengthy dissertation. He called it that. Sign up at trumpincpodcast.org. Coming up on Trump Inc., we're continuing to look at Trump's business deals. Is this it? Yeah, this is it. Wow, yeah, you look up and you can see it's taller than... A lot of things nearby. Send us your tips. If there's something you think we should know about, send it to tips at trumpincpodcast.org. To find out how to send us documents securely, go to our website, trumpincpodcast.org. While you're there, sign up for the newsletter. One note, we're on a summer break, working on new reporting for you. When we come back in September, we'll be fortnightly, that is, every other week. And do keep an eye on your podcast feeds. If something big happens, we'll have a special episode for you. Meg Kramer is the executive producer of Trump, Inc. This episode was also produced by Alice Wilder. It was edited by Eric Umansky. The technical director is Bill Moss. Special thanks to Isabel Angel. Emily Botine is the vice president for original programming at WNYC. Stephen Engelberg is the editor-in-chief of ProPublica. The original music is by Hannes Brown. This hearing is adjourned.